Good morning, church. It's so good to see each one of you here again today. And um, I look forward to Sabbath mornings. How about you? Look forward to uh, seeing the family of God and being in His presence and studying His Word. Last week we were talking a bit about the challenges to the accuracy of the Old Testament. So today we're going to just pick up where we left off a bit and um, talk about whether or not we can trust the Bible. So if you have your little bulletin inserts, you could pull them out at this point. We're going to talk a little more about some of the history of the confirmation of the Old Testament today. We we noted that the... uh, the Masoretes. The Masoretes had been um, uh, duplicating the Old Testament scrolls from the time of Christ, or before the time of Christ, actually, until um, somewhere in the um, 10th century or so was the earliest of the Masoretic texts. So, for for from the time that the Old Testament was f- finished, the Book of Malachi, until the the earliest scroll that we had in our possession was around 1,300 years. 1,300 years had passed between the writing of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, and the date of the earliest scroll that was available in the early 20th century. What happened was the Masoretes had such respect for the Scriptures that as their scrolls, which they had been using to study and comment upon, became worn out, they would actually burn them. And destroy them. And so we just had this gap of more than a millennium between the time of the the writing of the Old Testament and the the earliest known scroll that existed. And so the Bible critics had a heyday. They said, it's impossible for 1,300 years to pass and there not to be terrible errors that have been introduced into the Scriptures. In fact, in 1921, this was less than 100 years ago, in 1921, Friedrich Delich wrote, and he spoke on behalf of many of the scholars in the historical critical and textual critical world when he said that the biblical text had experienced, quote, a degree of corruption beyond our wildest imagination. The scholars said, look, if you were to see what Malachi wrote or Isaiah wrote or the other prophets wrote, and you were to compare it to what we have today and what we call the Bible, there would be no comparison. We wouldn't even be able to recognize them. That's how different these, uh, these uh, scripts would be, these texts would be. Now, of course, those who believed in the Bible, they countered with the argument that the Masoretes had been very careful copyists. Remember I mentioned briefly last week, they had they'd counted the letters and each part of the letter in the Hebrew And so that when they finished a page and they would count backwards and forwards and find the middle letter and and they would would make sure that all of their numerical um, double-checking, you might say, uh, they matched up. But uh, the scholars said that this theory or this history of the Masoretes' careful copy habits was a myth. That's what they believed this uh, theory or this uh, teaching was. It was just one of those myths that churchgoers, that superstitious Christians or Jews had established to try to believe in this book we call the Bible. So in 1947, one day, it seemed as though the critics' opinions and criticisms of the Bible were difficult to answer, unassailable. The next day, all of their theories were proven wrong. It only took one day. In fact, it was in March of 1947 when there was a young shepherd boy by the name of Muhammad Adib. This view of the experts was overthrown not by a scholar in a laboratory somewhere, but by a little boy who was out looking for some missing goats. He was looking for these goats, and these goats were, you know how goats are, they climb up on the rocks and on the mountainsides, and he was, he was just in the Qumran area around the Dead Sea, and as he was looking for his goats, he, he threw a rock up onto a cliff up above him, and he heard a curious sound, sort of a tinkling, smashing sound, and he was curious, so he threw another rock. 
And the second rock made the same noise. And this little shepherd boy, Muhammad, 12 or 13 years old, he climbed up this rock face to this cliff, cliff, and he found there a hole in the rock. He pulled himself up where he could barely see inside the hole. And there he saw clay jars and broken clay jars, thanks to his rocks. And just then, his fingers lost their grip on the rock and he fell down the mountainside. Now, he'd seen enough that he knew there was something in there that was of interest. And so he ran all the way back to his little Bedouin tent where his nomadic family lived. And he told someone what he had found. And some of the men went and they climbed up that rock cliff and they opened this little hole wide and they climbed inside the cave and they found there some unique pieces of leather rolled up in clay jars. They took them back to their tent and one of them was rolled out. When they rolled it out, it was nearly as long as their tent was. It nearly reached from the one end of their tent to the other. But they looked at this leather and they didn't know what they were holding. They were holding what became the known as the second part of the Isaiah scroll, the longest scroll that was found in that cave. Cave 1, they named it. They didn't know what it was. They saw this writing on, this, on the scroll, but they had no idea what that writing meant. They couldn't read it. And so for some time, these scrolls were packed along with the rest of their possessions. It, the leather wasn't really good to be used for anything, but as they moved from place to place, they carried it around until one of them thought, maybe I can get some money from it. And so they went into, the, into a, a town in Syria, I believe it was, or at least there was a Syrian cobbler, cobbler outside of Jerusalem, I think. It was a Syrian Christian. And he was a cobbler by trade. And they sold these scrolls to the cobbler. He thought maybe he could use it somewhere in repairing some shoes. You know, the leather would be of use. And the scroll sat in his cobbler shop for a period of time until he decided, I wonder what these writings really could be, mean. And so he went down to the monastery there uh, nearby and um, he showed this, these scrolls to one of the uh, monks or priests and uh, they thought this was worth further investigation. They took it to the university. And so for the first time, the world recognized that there were portions of the Bible which were uh, older than the Masoretic texts which we had been using. What that cobbler was told by one of the professors at the university, you are holding in your hands the oldest known portion of the Old Testament scriptures, nearly 2,000 years old. Now, of course, they wanted to find out where this cave was. They wanted to find out if there were more scrolls. But unfortunately, the Bedouin shepherds, they weren't that interested in, in divulging the information of where the caves had been found. In fact, they went back themselves and began scouring the area. And so for a while, there was a bit of a competition between the academic world and the government who wanted to make sure these treasures were protected and found and the local people who were who knew the area and wanted to find the caves and in in the end there were 10 caves that were found containing manuscripts and this is interesting cave 4 alone held 35,000 scroll fragments we're not just talking about a few jars rolled up with scrolls rolled up in them there were 35,000 portions of scrolls that were found in cave four alone. Now, as, as uh, the story began to be researched, they discovered that these scrolls had been left behind not by the Masoretes, but by the Essenes. That's E-S-S-E-N-E-S. -S -E -S. The Essenes. The Essenes were a group of people. They were a, um, they were, they, they practiced celibacy. They were Jewish scholars who had monasteries around the in the desert outside of Jerusalem. And the Essenes were careful Bible scholars also with the, uh, with the Masoretes. 
And as the Essenes were, um, were preparing to leave Jerusalem at the time, of, or the area around Jerusalem at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem, they decided that they would take their scrolls, which some of them were already several hundred years old. There were scrolls then that were already from the third century BC that they were using in their library. Instead of trying to carry them with them, instead of trying to destroy them in some way, the Essenes said, before we flee from the Roman armies that are coming or have already destroyed Jerusalem, we're going to hide these scrolls in a safe place where we can come back and get them. And so they made these special pots, these special clay jars. They put the scrolls inside the jars and they sealed them and placed them in caves and disguised the caves. And there those scrolls had lay hidden for more than 1,877 years. 1,877 years later, that little shepherd boy threw that rock and opened a whole new library of ancient manuscripts. As I mentioned, some of them were already several hundred years old at that time, so they were more than 2,000 years old. Now, of course, as everyone was interested in comparing these ancient scrolls, now known as the Dead Sea Scrolls, with the Bible that we have today in the 20th century, right? This was the 1947, 1949 by this time. The academic world was looking at these scrolls that had just been discovered and trying to compare them with the Old Testament scriptures. And what they discovered was not very convenient for the Bible's critics. What they discovered was that there were a few errors, yes, there were a few a few mistakes that could be found, differences with the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, for example. There was two or three mistakes that were found if you compare the book of Isaiah with the current Isaiah that we have today. But these mistakes were minor grammatical and spelling errors, and none of the mistakes found in all of those thousands, tens of thousands of scroll fragments, none of the mistakes changed the meaning of the texts as they were written. And so by 1952, the verdict was very clear in the academic world. Differences were almost exclusively spelling or grammatical mistakes. In no instance was the meaning of the text affected. Now the critics had something else to say. Are you sure those are old scrolls? Maybe this was some sort of a trick. Maybe this was an invented plot. Were they really 2,000 years old and older? And so this answer, this objection from the critics was also silenced in the last 50 years, 60 years, as monasteries around the Qumran area along the Dead Sea have been excavated. And we find there the coins, the coins that they use dating from, from between the 3rd century B.C. and the 1st and 2nd century A.D. They also used uh, carbon-14 tests and they dated the scrolls and their uh, wrappers that they had wrapped around them. And they also confirmed the date of these scrolls to be between the 3rd century B.C. and the 2nd century A.D. God is good, isn't he? The critics could no longer say that the Bible had been corrupted to a degree beyond our wildest imagination. I like this statement here. It's on the bottom of that, that sheet, that first page. It says, A thousand times over, the death knell of the Bible has been sounded, the funeral procession formed, the inscription cut on the tombstone, and the committal read. But somehow, the corpse never stays put. Some of the greatest minds and scientists have con contrived together to try to discredit the Bible. But over and over, the archaeologists shovel as well as the, uh, the facts of history have confirmed the Bible's authenticity. The Old Testament we can trust as being accurately conveyed to us today. Let's bow our heads forward of prayer. Father in heaven, we are grateful that we can come before you today. We thank you for bringing us here, each one. We come from our different backgrounds, our different homes, our different stresses and challenges of this week. We come because we need you. We need something from your word, from your throne today. And Lord, thank you for knowing those needs that we each have. And thank you for being able to fill them. 
We ask that your presence would be with us now as we open your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me, first of all, in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, the last book of New Testament. Our study this morning is called The Relevance of the Word. The Relevance of the Word. We're going to start with a verse that we all intellectually believe, I believe, I think, I think we all intellectually believe, applies to the church the last period of earth's history. It says in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14, Unto the angel of the, Laodice, the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would, or I wish, thou art cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Now, the revelator here is using a location familiar to those living in his time, in his part of the world, Laodicea. In fact, um, near Laodicea, there are hot springs. But as the water flows out of the mountain and flows down towards Laodicea, the water becomes what? It becomes lukewarm. It's not warm enough, hot enough to be used for bathing, but it's not cold enough to be used for drinking. It's sort of this unusable water. And so the, the author here of Revelation is saying, You're, you, the church of the Laodiceans, is like the water. You are like the water. That is not good for anything. And he says, what, what, what is this um, illustration depicting as far as a spiritual condition? Verse 17, Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So here he's depicting a people who think everything is okay and they don't realize there's really some problems in their heart, right? They don't realize there's really some difficulties. You know, as Christians today, living in what we believe is the last period of earth's history, living in the period described by Laodiceans, we often accept this as a passage describing the last day church, but we have a hard time really describing or uh, really accepting that the passage describes us. I'll speak for myself. I have a hard time accepting this is talking about me. It's easier for me to think it describes other Christians, right? Others around me. But the Bible is not here is not saying that these Christians are bad people. We are not bad people. In fact, if we look around, we can see in the world around us people that are worse than us, right? There are people who do worse things than we do as Christians. But this self-satisfied confidence in our own goodness is what God is complaining about. It's what He hates. Because we're not, because we are good, neither bad nor hot, neither bad nor holy, He says He will spew us out of His mouth. The problem is that we need, we need as, as Christians living in this time of earth's history, the ability to apply God's word not to everyone around us, but to apply God's word to us. You see the problem? The problem is that the Laodiceans, the Laodicean Christians, they look around them and they think, oh, God's word is talking about those people or this people or another people without realizing, no, I have a need, a spiritual need. I'm not what God would have me to be. And so today that's our topic. We're going to be looking at the relevance of the word. And let's look back in Matthew. Our scripture this morning came from Matthew 26. And we're going to spend most of our time there for the next few minutes that we have together. Matthew chapter 26, we're looking at the relevance of the word. Relevant simply means it's applicable. And we're talking about the relevance of the word to our own hearts. Notice what Jesus says. We're going to begin reading now in Matthew 26 and verse 31. Jesus is on his way with his disciples to the Mount of Olives. This is the after the Last Supper. This is as they are headed towards the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus will go through his great temptation to uh, just 
forget this sacrifice, but where he makes a decision to go through with this sacrifice, where he's betrayed by Judas's kiss and so forth. So this is the, this is the scenario. They're on their way, and Jesus begins talking to his, his disciples. He says in verse 31, Then Jesus said unto them, All of you will be offended because of me tonight. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered abroad. Now notice what Jesus is doing here. What does it mean when it says, it is written? What is he saying? He's quoting the the Bible, isn't he? He's quoting what we would call today the Old Testament. So he's, he's using the scriptures authoritatively. He's saying the Bible says... He's not just saying this is some legend or this is my idea. The Bible says, all of you are going to be offended because of me tonight. And then he quotes the scripture. For it is written, he says, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered abroad. So Jesus here is, it's as he's preaching to the disciples. You understand, he's opening the word of God. He's quoting the Word of God, and he's giving an interpretation, an application of the Word of God to his disciples. Are you with me? Jesus is teaching his disciples from the Bible. And he says, on the authority of the Bible, this is what's going to happen tonight. And he says, but after I am risen again, how does he say it? But after I'm risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. Now, as he's walking along, and his disciples are walking with him, and he's teaching them on the authority of what the Scripture says, that this is going to happen tonight... The disciples are thinking, no, this can't happen. We're not going to do that. And so Peter, Peter is the one who we can count on to actually say what he's thinking, right? He's the one who thinks or who speaks first and thinks second. Um, We often are critical or hard on Peter. But really, Peter is sort of just the, the most transparent of the disciples, perhaps. You understand? Peter is the one who is simply saying what the rest of the disciples are thinking. And so Peter says, in, in, in contradiction of what Jesus has just said, Peter answered in verse 33 and said unto him, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. You see, Peter is starting down a pathway. He's starting down a pathway that he's going to wish he hadn't gone down. Remember last week we were talking about the inevitability of the word? We were talking about how the prophet Balaam began going down a pathway of resisting the word of God until he came to the point where he was fighting against what the Bible said, what God told him. Remember we talked about the denial of the word being what? Anybody remember? You can't just... You usually don't just stop with where you start denying the word. The denial of the word, that's right, is progressive. We start off just sort of saying, well, I really don't like it. And Balaam, he said, let's, let's hear what more God will say. I'll keep studying. But unless we accept a love of the truth, unless we're willing to surrender our hearts to the truth, we might become more and more open in our resistance, denial of the word. And here Peter simply makes a, he makes a mistake. He makes a mistake that many Christians, I would dare say most Christians, tend to make when they sit in church or when they read the Bible. He's making the mistake of not accepting the words of God as being relevant to his life. He's assuming that they are relevant to all of the people around him except him. You see what he's doing? He says, no, Jesus. I mean, he's not going to... He's not going to say Jesus is wrong because that's not where you start in the progression of denial, right? Peter's not just starting and saying, Jesus, you're confused. I mean, that's not what Peter says. Peter says, you're right. You're right about everyone except me. You understand? He fails to make the word of God relevant to his own heart and his own life. And he says, though all men should be offended because of you, yet will I never be offended. Jesus is speaking the truth about 99.999% of the people, but not about me. And so Peter fails to make the word of God relevant. Now, I'm glad God is patient with us, aren't you? Even when we fail to make the word of God relevant. Because Jesus 
answers now and he says to Peter directly, verse 34, look with me, verse 34, Jesus said unto him, who's him? It's Peter. So Peter now is being addressed directly. He says, verily I say unto you that this night before the cock or rooster crows, you will deny me thrice, three times. He's addressing Peter directly. Now, here we're going to see another example of how the denial of the word is progressive. Because at first, Peter's just saying it doesn't apply to me, right? But now that it comes so close to home that he can't escape it, he says in verse 35, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. You see how Peter now has progressed? from the first step of not making it relevant to his own heart to now contradicting what Jesus says. Now he is actually saying to Jesus, Jesus, you are wrong. Could we do that? Could we actually tell God he doesn't know what he's talking about? Let me ask you a question before we answer that question. Does God usually know what he's talking about? I mean, last week we talked about the inevitability of the word, right? I mean, the word of God comes true whether we deny it or not. We can pretend it doesn't exist. We can not like it. We can fight against it. We can try to do everything to pretend as though the word of God isn't true. The word of God cannot fail. It's inevitable. Balaam should teach us that clearly. But Peter hadn't learned from Balaam. Peter thought, if I just disagree with what Jesus is saying, then what Jesus is saying won't be so. If I just say I don't believe it, I don't agree with it, you're not telling the truth, then it won't happen. But did it happen? The Word of God is inevitable. It's inevitable. And so the Bible says, we're going to look here in the next few uh, verses. We're going to look here at, um, in your handout, three denials which I would propose to you that Peter made regarding Jesus. The first we're going to, we're going to read in verse 36 and onward. Then came Jesus with them to the place called Gethsemane. And said unto the disciples, sit ye here and while I go and pray yonder. He took with him, who did he take? He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. And here he says, as he asked the the twelve disciples to pray, and he then takes three of them a little further, right? And he says, he says to them very clearly, these are his closest three companions, Peter, James, and John. He says, my soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. The humanity of Jesus longed for someone, someone to be with him, struggling with him in this hour of trial and test. Do you understand what Jesus was going through? Jesus was beginning to feel the awful weight of the sins of the world. Have you ever felt guilty? Nothing like Jesus was feeling guilty. Have you ever felt hopeless? Nothing like Jesus was feeling hopeless. Have you ever felt abandoned by God that just you're too bad for your prayers to be heard? Nothing like what Jesus was feeling at that time. Jesus had been accustomed to such a close and intimate relationship with his Father and this 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 relationship he felt being severed. It wasn't because God was really rejecting him. It was because he was rejecting the sins which Jesus was now accepting as a sacrifice for the world. And Jesus was going through an emotional, psychological, mental trauma that no human being has yet to feel. The second death. He was tasting for every man, every woman, every child. And the humanity of Jesus wanted somebody to be with him. Somebody to pray. If he just knew that someone was praying, 
If he just knew somebody cared, I mean, it was visible on his expression. The disciples knew something was wrong with him. And he's here telling them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. Was Jesus the type to exaggerate? He's telling the truth. And he asks his disciples, all of them, he asks, pray with me. He takes the three a little further and he asks Peter, James, and John, please pray with me. And he goes a little further and he fell on his face. And it wasn't so far, but they should have been able to hear what he was praying. He was agonizing in prayer. The condition of his mind, there was such great stress. There's actually a medical condition, and I'm not a a doctor, and I can't tell you exactly what the name is called, but I've talked to doctors about this. There's actually a medical condition where stress becomes so great that capillaries in the skin burst, and they can actually sweat blood, and that's what Jesus was going through. It is extremely rare for a healthy person. Jesus is agonizing. The Bible says the first denial of Peter, I would like to, I would like to submit, is found here in verse 40. It says, When he came to the disciples and findeth them asleep, he said unto who? Peter. Now they were all sleeping, right? All three of them. I assume the rest of the nine were too. But Jesus speaks particularly to Peter. Peter, the one who said, I will die with you before I forsake you or before I deny you. He was not even able to pray with them for a little while. And so Jesus says unto Peter, what? Could you not watch with me one hour? And then as only the loving Jesus could do. He begins to make some excuse. He understood the weakness of Peter. He says, Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Peter knew, Jesus knew that Peter had a good heart. Isn't that what he's saying here? The spirit indeed is what? Peter had a good heart, but is having a good heart enough? Does having a good heart keep you from denying Christ? Didn't keep Peter. So Jesus loved Peter, and he wanted Peter to not fall into this trap. He knew he had already gone down this progression of first not making the Word of God relevant to his life, and then actually contradicting, disagreeing with Jesus. And he knew that Peter was just about to go ahead and confirm what the Word of God had said, because the Word of God is inevitable. Jesus wanted to spare him from that tragic mistake. So he says, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. You see, denial does not only come in direct statements against Jesus, but in the words and actions of our lives. I would submit to you that by abandoning Jesus in the hour of his extreme temptation and decision, these three disciples were in effect, in effect denying Christ. All of you will go to sleep. If Jesus had earlier said, all of you will go to sleep on me instead of praying, what do you think Jesus would have, uh, Peter would have said? Not me. <laughs> Everyone else will sleep, but not me. I'd like to look at his third. We know, we know Jesus prayed the prayer three times. And he came back, he found them sleeping each time. Let's skip down to verse 45. Then he came to his disciples the third time, and he said, Sleep on now, take your rest. Behold, the Son of Man is at the hour is at hand, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. And while he yet spake, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude of sword, with swords and staves, and the chief priests and elders of the people. And he now he, he that betrayed him gave him them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same is he. Hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? And they, then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And the Bible says in verse 51, Behold, one of them which were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priests and smote off his ear. You get the picture, don't you? You know the story. 
As the disciples are sitting there sleeping, Jesus says, look, it's over. It's too late now. I'm being betrayed. And they heard the rabble. They heard the noise. They heard this mob coming up. The low life of Jerusalem had been roused in the middle of the night to come and to make sure Jesus didn't get away. And so you had this motley crowd of the priests and the rulers, the Roman guards, and and all the followers coming after just for the excitement, their torches and their swords and their spears, and they're clanging through the garden. And Judas comes and does his betrayer's work, pretending to be a loving disciple of Jesus, embracing him and kissing him. Jesus, with a heart broken with love for Judas also, calls him friend. Friend. And Peter, I can imagine, is sort of startled from his lethargy. He's he's awakened, perhaps in surprise. And he hears all these things, he sees all these things, and you know how it is when you're not quite awake? And you don't have quite all your faculties processing yet? Peter starts up and he decides, you know what? I said I would not deny him. I said I would not forsake him. Now is the time for me to be brave. And so what does he do? He, we know this was Peter from the other gospel accounts. He pulls out his sword and he says, I'm going to single-handedly defend Jesus from this mob. And he begins swinging. And either Peter was half asleep or he had very poor aim. We always assume, you know, the man sort of ducked or something, but I'm sure Peter was not aiming for an ear. That's all he came up with. An ear. What does Jesus say to Peter? Verse 52. It says, Then said Jesus unto him, Put up thy, again thy sword unto his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. And then he says something very interesting in verse 53. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then shall the Scriptures be fulfilled that that thus it must be? Jesus says to Peter, Look, Peter, do you forget who I am? I walked on the water. I fed thousands with a little basket of bread and fish. I brought dead people to life. When the crowds tried to, uh, or when the guards tried to arrest me, I passed unseen through them. I'm the Son of God. I can say a word. And 10,000 angels will be sent from heaven. Do I really need your help? Do I really need your help? What Jesus is saying here is, Peter, don't forget who I am. I'm still God. I don't need you to rescue me. You see, I would submit to you that Peter is now denying Jesus for the second time in action. He's acting as if the Son of God needed his sword to save him. A human response to a serious problem. The Bible says in verse 56... Matthew 26 and verse 56. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. In the last part of the verse, notice what it says. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Who does all include? It includes Peter. And I would suggest to you that first, Peter denied Christ in action by sleeping when he was asked to pray. He denied Christ through his actions by thinking he could rescue the Son of God. He denied Christ by his action when he ran off and forsook him. In fact, it very well may have been Peter who suggested it's each man for himself. We've got to save ourselves if Jesus is not going to save himself. And they all took off. They fled. But that's not the end of the story, of course. The story continues as Jesus is taken to the trial and as he comes to the trial, we find that Peter got access to the courtyard outside of where the trial was taking place. John, the young disciple, was probably following Jesus the closest, and he was admitted with the full knowledge that he was a disciple, and and John actually got permission for Peter to be brought in. But Peter, instead of coming in as the disciple of Jesus, Peter Peter tried to pretend he wasn't quite related to this whole proceeding. 
Peter tried to pretend he was one of those of the crowd who had gone and gotten Jesus. And he's standing around the fire. And then we find the three denials in action, which, in word, which Jesus had predicted. The Bible says in verse 69, it says that, Now Peter sat without in the palace, and a damsel, a young lady, came unto him, saying, Thou wast also with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied before them, saying, I know not what thou sayest. That's in Matthew 26. And verse 70, the first denial which, G, which Peter made in word was to a lady who said, you were also one of those who were with Jesus in, of Galilee. Verse 71 says, when he was gone out into the porch, another maid said unto him, this fellow, or unto them that were with him, this fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth. Isn't it interesting? The bold Peter who had pulled out his sword and was willing to fight to the death, who said, I'll never deny Jesus. He's intimidated by these women. Humble servant lady, you were also, this fellow was also with Jesus. And Peter says in verse 73, his second, I mean verse 72, his second denial, I don't know the man. I do not know the man. Verse 73, and after a while came unto them him, one that stood by. They're sort of watching Peter. In fact, I believe what happened was Peter was watching Jesus. They were, he was watching what they were doing to Jesus. Jesus was being abused. And Peter, even though he was pretending not to know what was going on, not to care, he couldn't hide what was on his face. And that was the pain of seeing Jesus go through such inhumane treatment. And there was someone standing by watching Peter from a distance. And they recognized, you can't, you can't fool us. You do care about what's going on in there. You do care. You, you wince when they beat him. You do care. And they said to Peter, Surely you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. And then the third denial is found in verse 74, then began he to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man. What happened next? The rooster crowed. And immediately, Peter recognized that no matter how hard he had tried to deny it, the word of God is inevitable. It always comes true. And the Bible says in verse 75 that Peter went out and wept bitterly. There's good news about Peter's denial. The good news is that as Peter went out and wept bitterly, there was still opportunity for him to be forgiven. Isn't that good news? He had made a terrible mistake thinking he could change the word of God. He could just, if he just followed his heart, if he just, if he just denied it, if he just didn't want it, if he didn't believe it, if he just gritted his teeth, surely the word of God would not be true for him. He found out terribly and painfully, but not too late. Not too late. He went out and he wept bitterly and praised God. The love and the forgiveness of Jesus was sufficient to forgive Peter's sin of denial. Amen? In fact, we won't take time to look at it today. But as Jesus came back and met with the disciples after his death, in fact, stop, even before Jesus met with his disciples, when he sent messages to his disciples, he said, tell my disciples and Peter. Remember that? Jesus knew that Peter was devastated, guilt-stricken, as he realized what he had done. But Jesus forgave Peter. And P Jesus restored Peter. And Peter became a worker for Jesus in the early Christian church. Oh, sometimes we, we may find ourselves in conflict with the Word of God. And I just want to speak to each one of you for a minute here this morning. We may find ourselves in conflict with the Word of God. We may even make mistakes thinking we can 
somehow get around. We're going to be the exception to the rule. The Word of God won't apply to us. Somehow we get ourselves into situations that are bad situations. The good news is that Jesus is willing to forgive and to restore. Let's not wait till it's too late, shall we? Let's not wait till it's going to be too late for that conviction to bring forgiveness. Let's go to Jesus now while we can still be forgiven, while we can still hear His voice speaking to us. I was reading this week, and I forget who wrote it. It was one of the Puritan pastors back in the 17th century. But he said something essentially like this. One day soon the arrows of God's wrath will pierce the hearts that could, be not, that could not be pierced by the arrows of conviction. I don't want to wait till it's too late, do you? Peter wept bitterly. There's going to be a lot of people weeping bitterly in the last day, isn't there? Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, but we did. Jesus says there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why? Simply because Christians failed to make the Word of God relevant to their hearts. Are you with me? The only safety for us living today is if we apply the Word of God to us and allow God to change our hearts and bring us into harmony with His Word. Now, I want to just make it a little more relevant. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hands, but this is where it becomes convicting for me. How many of you have listened to this story of Peter and subconsciously you have assumed that if you had been Peter, you would not have done what he did? I'm going to confess something. Most of the time, when I hear Bible stories about people who made major mistakes, I assume that, of course, now with the hindsight that I have, I somehow assume that I would have had that same wisdom and been in their shoes before it happened, and I wouldn't have done that. But am I fair to say that if we think we would not have done what they did, that we probably have failed to actually make the story relevant to us? as a warning, as a lesson for us. We tend to think, oh, I wish somebody else had heard that. I wish someone else would obey the Word of God. I wish someone else would realize the inevitability of the Word, the futility of fighting against the Word, of trying to deny the Word. I wish someone else... And we fail to apply it to our own hearts. And in so doing, we do exactly what Peter did that night as Jesus was walking with him to the garden. And we prepare ourselves to further deny the Word of God because denial of the Word is progressive. How many of you have ever seen someone or known someone who annoyingly always thinks that they're right? Maybe a rhetorical question. We probably all have had somebody who always knew knew, uh, that they were right. They're ready to argue with any minor detail that they see as inaccurate or can be disproved. And um, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to tell you, as a person, I, I get annoyed. Do you get annoyed when people are always right? What is your reaction? What is my reaction is to prove them wrong. Right? Find something that they're saying that's not quite right and explode that little detail and show them that they're not always Right? The reason that they're so annoying is because they're a lot like us. People who think they're, off, they're always right are especially annoying to those of us who are always right. It's reality. We tend to apply to others rules that we ourselves are not willing to live by. We tend to Make it relevant to others, not to ourselves. And so I want to ask you this morning, is the Word of God relevant to your heart, to your life? What about this warning of denial? As we close, I want to share with you 
this statement from Desire of Ages, page 357. It's on the bottom of your page. It says, Men may deny Christ by evil speaking, by foolish talking, by words that are untruthful or unkind. They may deny Him by shunning life's burdens, by the pursuit of sinful pleasure. They may deny Him by conforming to the world, by uncourteous behavior, by the love of their own opinions, by justifying self, by cherishing doubt, borrowing trouble, dwelling in darkness. In all these ways, they declare that Christ is not in them. My point in sharing this statement with you this morning is simply this. Might we, like Peter, be in danger of denying Jesus? Do we have temptations? Oh, we're not in, 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 in the courtyard of Caiaphas. You won't be this week, probably. But all the same, you and I are going to be put in positions where we either are, we are either witnessing of Christ or for Christ, or we're denying Him by what we do, the words we speak, the lies we live. We need to make the Word of God relevant to our hearts. I need this morning to make the Word of God relevant to my life. Is that your desire today? Do you want to say, Lord, too often I've, I've listened to sermons, I've read your Word, and I've applied it to everybody but myself. Help me this week not to just sort of look down my nose and condemn Peter, but help me to apply this truth, this story, this illustration to my own life. That this week I won't be denying you. Is that your desire today? Let's bow our heads as we pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that in your love, in your patience, you still extend mercy to us today. Lord, we look at Peter and sometimes we marvel and we say, I wouldn't do that. Lord, help us to make the Word of God relevant, not to make the same mistake He did while thinking ourselves better. Laodicea thinks that everyone else around them is lukewarm, but Lord, help us to see that we ourselves are being spoken to by Your Word today. Father, there may be someone here who's been discouraged. Help them not just to realize the inevitability of the of the judgments against sin in your word, but help them also to realize that your word never fails and your promises will be fulfilled. And Lord, if they're discouraged, strengthen them by that strong word to know that you will never leave them or forsake them, to know that if they come to you, you will for no reason reject them, cast them out, knowing that you are able to save to the uttermost all who come unto God through Jesus. Lord, today there may be someone here who is struggling with accepting the word in their life. Maybe they know their life is not in harmony with your word and they think they can be the exception. Father, show them the inevitability of your word. Teach to them, teach us from the story of Peter the futility of trying to deny and to apply it to everyone but ourselves. Oh, Father, today, Make us, I pray, obedient to the word, that it might have a ready and willing heart in our lives, that it might bear much fruit. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.